0: So, a friend of mine is a missionary, and uh, specifically, he has he gone and he is living in a remote village now in Indonesia. Uh, and he's living there, and uh, what he's doing, what he's trying to accomplish there, is he's trying to bring to uh, the people who he's living with, who are called the Yetfa people. And, and so, he's working to bring to the Yetfa people a Bible in their own language. Uh, there are still people groups out there in the world who, do, who they don't have the luxury of we have of going to the store and deciding which different translation of the English version of the Bible they want to read. Uh, they don't have a Bible in their language at all. And so that's, he's going over there, he's working to get them a Bible in their own language, but here's the trick. They don't have a written language. Uh, these people are so primitive that basically what he's got to do now is he has gone to this country and just completely immersed himself in the culture. And then what he does is he, he just slowly starts trying to pick up the language by, by living with them. Uh, lots of time spent going around pointing at things, asking to the best of his ability, what's this? What's this? What's this? And just slowly, slowly, slowly learning words. But that's the easy part. The next part is, okay, now let's figure out how their sentence structure works. Uh, I think most of us know when you compare English and Spanish, the words don't go in the same order. And so, as you can imagine, the Yetfa people, their words don't go in the same order as English words. And so now he's got to learn their sentence structure. And then once he's got all of that down, now he can sit down and begin to phonically spell out every word that he's learned. And he begins himself creating a written language Now he has to go and teach the written language to the people in the community so that they can read and write. And then it's at this point that he can now take uh, his English Bible and what he does is he begins to orally teach them stories of the Bible in their language and they write it down. And so they're slowly working through this process of writing these Bible stories down to get it in their own language and have at least some form of a Bible that they can start to distribute to the people uh, so that they can have the word of God. In the midst of this, Chase, who is the missionary to the Yetfa people, uh, is married. He's got three kids, three little boys, and of course, they're homeschooled because there's not enough academics involved in, in everything else he's doing in bringing a written Bible to a people without a written language. So he's homeschooling these kids at the same time. Uh, and he had posted on Facebook the other day, as I'm scrolling through and I'm reading, and he says from the other room, he, he can hear something going on from his two of his boys. And so he starts to listen and he hears seven times six, 42. Seven times eight, 50, 50, 54. Pop out. Seven times three, 23. Pop out. And so he gets up and he goes and peeks in the room, and as his son answers another question wrong, he sees his other son on the other side of the room taking a Nerf gun, dropping a dart in it, cocking it back, aims at his, at his brother and shoots him. And so every time he gets the question wrong, he gets shot by his brother. And, and so, I mean, this is funny, but, but this is a child's perception of fair, right? And in a child's mind, you get a multiplication question wrong, you get shot. That's just... That's just doing business, right? That's how kids work. And, and so, uh, so what is a child's perception of fair? What's a child's perception of justice? I mean, in their minds, it's totally fair to have these kinds of consequences to something as simple as getting a question wrong. And so these are the same kids that, that you and I know that we have to sit down with and explain to them that life is not fair. There, there are a lot of things that we look at in life and, and we just have to sit down and explain to our kids as they're growing up in this life that life is not fair. But, but at that same time as we're teaching our kids that life is not fair, we're grumbling and complaining because we didn't get what we deserved and, and because so-and-so should have done this and they didn't. And, and so in the same breath that we teach our kids that life is not fair, here we are. But let me ask this question. What happens to your perception of fair when you've been shown mercy? See, suddenly your perception changes a little bit. What is the man who was a convicted criminal and while in court had somebody pay his debt off for him? He should have gone to prison. There should have been consequences. But somebody showed him mercy. Now suddenly he's not so wrapped up in fair. He doesn't want life to be fair. He just wants life to be merciful. And you and I both know very well that when we get caught doing something wrong, we don't want life to be fair. We are suddenly far more concerned with mercy. Mercy and grace. And so if you're new here, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Blessed Quest. And the whole idea behind this is is that tagline, finding true happiness. And so what we've been doing the past few weeks is we've been going through what is actually Jesus's very first sermon that he ever teaches. So it must be a big deal, right? And, And in Jesus's very first sermon, he goes through a series of saying, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And so we broke this down and we said, well, what does this word blessed mean? It doesn't mean just getting something new. It doesn't mean being given something necessarily. Uh, It means happy. But it's it's not the happiness that we get from a promotion at work or from buying something new. It's the happiness that we have that when the storm comes and radically shakes our life, we stand firm in that deep-seated contentment. That when everything around us falls apart, we still have a joy that the rest of the world can't seem to understand. And so this is what Jesus is continually unpacking to us. And so we'll go back, and and as we get to today's passage, we'll look at also the other passages leading up to this. And so uh, if you've got your Bible, starting out in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be a little bit of all over the place tonight. But this morning, not tonight. But we'll be in Matthew chapter 5. And starting in verse 2, it says, And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so the first thing for us to know about this, right out of the gates, is that this entirely goes against everything that is within our human desires, to show mercy. Don't believe me? Try driving in traffic in the Bay Area. Uh, my in-laws are actually here. They're, they're from that area. They can, they can attest to how bad uh, driving in Bay Area traffic is, how bad driving in San Francisco is. I haven't even done it yet because I know how mad I'll be. Uh, I, I have bad enough road rage in Porterville. I'm not going to drive in San Francisco. That's just, I'm, I'm setting myself up for success by not driving there. And I mean, this, this is just a reality, right? I'm telling you, try driving with your pastor for a little bit and you'll find that mercy goes against my very nature. Because when I am personally offended by something, what do I want? In the heat of the moment, what do I want? I want revenge, right? I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's, that's what's inside of us. That's, that's the immediate reaction that we have, that when somebody cuts us off on, in the road... I mean, I shouldn't even tell this story, but my wife and I, more and more recently, we've been driving places, and somebody will cut me off, and they take off, they fly past me, and then they break in front of me, they take off, they fly past me, and it's just driving me crazy. And once I finally get past them, I say, I hope somebody pulls you over. (laughs) I want revenge, right? I need somebody to come in and, and show this person what they should be. But no, no, Jesus is saying something entirely different. Jesus is saying, whether or not this goes against your nature, I'm telling you, blessed are the merciful. See, revenge isn't going to bring you satisfaction. Revenge isn't going to give you that deep-seated joy, but Jesus is giving you a counteroffer. And so most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, we probably think that we're pretty merciful. You know, we start thinking about this kind of thing. We start running instances through our head, and you're like, yeah, I remember when I forgave so-and-so when I probably shouldn't have. Uh, I remember when I went out and did, I'm a pretty good person. This doesn't apply to me. This is for somebody else, right? Right? So, so there has to be some sort of litmus test for us to prove to us whether or not we're actually as merciful as we seem to think that we are. And, and so that's what we're going to do is, t- today is we're going to kind of unpack what this litmus test for us is, what, what Jesus defines as mercy, what that should look like in our lives. And so again, this week, actually, if you've got a bulletin coming in, hopefully you did. Uh, we have some, some blanks on there for you to fill in. Hopefully you have a pen too. And so we'll jump into this first blank here. And so the merciful seek out the poor and weak. The merciful seek out the poor and the weak. And so hear me clearly when I say this. This doesn't say the merciful show mercy to the poor and weak. You catch that, right? It says the merciful seek out the poor and the weak. So it's more than just when confronted with an area to show mercy to someone, you show it. It's more than that. It's instead saying, who can I find to bring justice to? Who can I find to stand up for them when nobody else will? How can I go out of my way to show mercy to someone? And so in James chapter 1 verse 27, fairly familiar passage to us, uh, James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me, let me go back a little bit. Is this, to visit the orphans and the widows. James doesn't say the pure and undefiled religion is to wait for them to come to you. That when you're confronted with the orphans and the widows, you do something about it. James says you go to them you seek them out, you find them, and you comfort them. You show them mercy that the rest of the world doesn't seem to want to show them. And if you go back through through really the entirety of the Old Testament, you'll find something remarkably similar to this passage here. It's said over and over and over and over again to God's people as as they keep bringing him sacrifices that they're doing wrong and that they have with the wrong heart and everything else. And God is saying, you're missing it. I don't just want your sacrifice, I want your heart. And so what he says over and over is is almost this, but he adds a third group throughout the Old Testament, a third group that isn't mentioned here simply because that's what this group is in the book of James. So what what does God say in the Old Testament? God says to seek out the orphans, the widows, and the foreigners. We can get political for a minute, but I I won't have us get too political uh, because People don't like to come to church for that, but, but what we need to understand is that there's an underlying truth to God's word that regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of what you've decided uh, is right and wrong, God defines right and wrong, and God says to seek out the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners, and to show them mercy. But why these three groups? Why specifically these three, widows, orphans, and foreigners? What was it about these people that God took the time to specifically point them out and not others? It, there has to be some sort of importance to them, right? And so uh, if, if we take a look at these closely, we see that there is a clear lack of something divine that God offers. Something is missing there. And so think about it this way. God reveals himself to us in both the Old and New Testament as a husband, He talks about his relationship with Israel and how it's a covenantal relationship, just like one that is the relationship between a husband and a wife. And even in the New Testament, we have Jesus and the bride of Christ, right? So we have this husband-wife relationship. And so to the widows, there's something divine that is lacking in their lives. God reveals himself in the New Testament to us as God the Father, right? Right? Jesus prays to his father. Jesus tells us to pray to his father. And and so there's, there's something there. The New Testament tells us that God is a father to the fatherless, which means the orphans are then lacking something that is divine. And then we see all the way in the very beginning and scattered throughout the entirety of the Bible, we see that in God's very nature, being a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that there is community within himself. God didn't create humanity because in perfection, he was thinking to himself, man, I really need some friends. He had perfect community in himself. And so instead, what that was is it's an outpouring of his own love and community between the Father to the Son, to the Son to the Holy Spirit, and back to the Father. This just rotation of love and community that poured out into creation. And so, We even see in Genesis 2.18 that when God creates everything, he says, and it was not good that man be, what? Alone. So there's something in us, something about the design of our souls that begs for community. And so to the foreigner, they've been cut off from their community. And so God is specifically reaching to those people who something about their souls, something that is designed to work a, a distinct way has been removed from them. And he says, okay, church, guess who's gonna be that to them? You will be the husband to the widow. You will be the father to the fatherless. And you will be the community to the foreigner. The people lacking in the relationships that God offers to us need the church the most. You know, I was thinking about when Katie was still pregnant with Felicity, and I was talking with somebody about uh, what it was gonna be like to be a dad. And, and what I was going to do to make sure that I was a better dad than anybody else out there and make sure that I get it right and that I'm going to do all these, all these specific things that I'm going to do to be the best dad that I can be. And, and I don't even remember who I was talking to, but I remember very specifically what he said to me. He explained to me that when Felicity starts to get a little bit older, she's going to invite a lot of friends over to the house. She's going to start to meet people. And there are a lot of kids out there who don't have dads. And they're going to end up in my house. So guess who's dad now? I'm not just dad to Felicity, but I have been called as a Christian to be a father to the fatherless. We as a church, as as we start to see kids from our community spill into the seats in here, and when those kids don't have parents, guess who becomes mom and dad? That's our call as Christians. And Jesus, though, he is telling us, no, 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 I want you to take it a step further. I don't want you to wait for them to start spilling into the seats in the church. I don't want for you to wait for your daughter to start inviting them into your home. I want you to find them. I want you to go after them. Just as Jesus didn't wait in heaven for us to meet him because he knew we'd never make it, Jesus instead came and met us where we are. He sought us out and he brought us mercy. And he says, all I'm asking is that you be like me. If you're going to carry the name of Christ and be Christians, I'm asking that you be like me. And that you seek out the orphans, the widows, and the foreigners. And when the rest of the world around us won't show them mercy, when the rest of the world around us turns their back on them, as the church, we don't have that option. We are the people who show them mercy, who love them when no one else will. And what I love about this entire concept is it, is it really kind of unpacks the character of God for us. So so we're very familiar when reading through the Bible that God is a God of love, right? We know that. But, But coupled with that equally is that God is a God of justice. He's just as much a God of love as he is a God of justice. And so when we begin to unpack this and we think about this, to take care of the poor is just an outpouring of love to pour out to those who aren't receiving any love. And we pour out love to them. And in the same regard to the weak, to those that society takes advantage of, we say, when nobody else will stand up for you, I'll stand up for you. I'll I'll be the one to take the punch for you. I'll be the one that when everybody else has rejected you, I'll be there. That's called justice. And Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs to speak up for those who have no voice. That's justice, right? That's what we're called to as Christians. That, that the community around us that can't speak for themselves, that the rest of society has turn their backs on, we show justice. Because that's what Jesus did. And if we're going to carry the name of Christ and be called Christians, then we do what Jesus did. We're justice seekers. We're a people who will, at the cost of vulnerability, pour out love to the world around us until there is no denying the truth of Jesus. And so the next blank that we've got for you to fill in. The merciful show mercy to the most vile. This is a fun one. The merciful show mercy to the most vile. So a few chapters after this, in Matthew chapter 5, the apostles had some questions for Jesus about heaven. Uh, Specifically, because they're the apostles, they begin to ask Jesus, so who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? right? What do I have to do to be your right-hand man, Jesus? I'm just i thinking about your throne. It must be pretty cool. If I just had like kind of 50% of what your throne is to sit next to you, and when you're like judging people for their sins and stuff, if I could also maybe like whisper a little bit of input, you know, the tax collectors that took my money, the Roman soldiers, like, I'll I'll kind of give you a heads up on who's who and I can help you judge those people. And so this is what the apostles are asking Jesus. And so Jesus, uh, in typical Jesus fashion, begins to preach a sermon to them and and he really begins to unpack the idea of forgiveness because he's seeing the root of what is in Peter's heart. And he's showing Peter this forgiveness that he needs to have. and And he tells Peter, he says, hey, when somebody wrongs you, you confront them. You talk to them. Tell them what they did to you. But, but also, in the end, you still forgive that person. So so to sit and judge people, that's not what you think it is. There's a lot more forgiveness in that than you want right now, Peter. And so this is, when, when Jesus begins to explain to Peter the forgiveness that he has to offer, this is uh, the, the genius exchange between Peter and Jesus. And in Matthew 18, 21 through 22, it says, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? as many as seven times because that's a lot (laughs) and Jesus said to him I don't say to you seven times but I say to you 77 times and I love this because Peter starts out by by bringing this principle to Jesus you know Jesus is telling Peter how many times to to forgive and Peter's like okay Clearly, Jesus doesn't realize how often people wrong me. Like, I mean, strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. I'll forgive you three times, maybe, depending on the sin. We'll, we'll figure it out. But Jesus will understand when I say seven times that that's ridiculous. Seven times is just too much. But when we look at the life of Jesus, what is seven times? What, what is forgiveness for seven times? If Jesus stopped forgiving me seven times... Oh boy, do I need to figure something out because I lost that a long time ago. That, that's long gone for me. And what Jesus is saying is he's not saying the literal number 77 times, but he's saying you just keep forgiving them. Where there's gra- or where there's, where there's sin, there's grace. You keep forgiving them. So let me challenge you this way. Think about the hardest person in your life to forgive the hardest person in your life to forgive. And I'd be willing to bet that there are one of two things that have happened for that person to get into that position in your life. Either one, they did something so extreme that you instantly, it was too much, and you've turned your back, and you said, I'm not dealing with this anymore. I'm done. Or, what happens much more often is they took advantage of you, and you forgave them. And then they took advantage of you, And you forgave them. And then they took advantage of you, and you forgave. And eventually you get to the point where you say, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive them? When are you going to teach them a lesson? They won't stop taking advantage of me. This isn't okay, Jesus. I can't keep doing this. And you finally say, I'm done. And you stop forgiving them. Now, I understand that we're talking about mercy, which is not exactly the same thing as forgiveness, but they do share some similarities. Specifically, the people who need them. The people, and, and the people who don't want to give them out. The people who need mercy are the same people who need forgiveness. The same people who don't want to forgive are the same people that are having a really hard time handing out mercy. And here's how I can prove that to you. This, the same person that you have a hard time forgiving when something happens in their life, when they have some sort of a hiccup in life, or something, you know, not, not major, I'm not saying like they got hit by a bus or anything, but something happens to them, you kind of, good. <laughs> now see, don't lie to me, you're in church. You do it. I know you do it. I've seen it. Just in the few months that I've been here. I mean, we see something happen to somebody and we're like, well, they get what's coming to them. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not how this works. That's not how this works. See, if Jesus would have been the guy to fold his arms and say, God, what's coming to you? Oh, well. Then where would we be? I mean, we, we have to start recognizing just how bad we are. And so so here's where this ties in with the vision for our church, with where we're going as a church. Uh, It's important to understand and remember that we're trying to create a church and a culture that unchurched people love to attend. All of the changes that we make, all of the structures that that we build up, all of the things that we do are based on this idea that we want to create a church that unchurched people love to attend. Or in other words, the people that the rest of the churches... mm, they probably won't say it, but they probably don't want them there. Because they're the people who are messy. So see, ideally, here's what's going to happen. As we start to make these changes, we start to get messy people. We start to get broken people. We start to get people who need forgiveness and mercy more than anybody else in the world. And so as we see larger, larger and larger groups of people needing mercy come in, that means that in our own hearts, we're going to have to be prepared to start giving larger and larger amounts of mercy, that there's no end to this tank of mercy, that we keep showing it, that we keep loving people, that we keep forgiving people in the midst of their brokenness because that's what Jesus did. I mean, did Jesus love the Pharisees? Uh, Yeah, he did, right? Jesus loved the Pharisees more than we could ever possibly imagine. But who was always around Jesus? the broken, the rejected, the people that nobody else in society wanted. Those are the people that Jesus went after. Jesus said, the physician doesn't show up for healthy people, he comes for sick people. And so what I'm saying is as we move forward as a church, we're, we're not trying to bring people in other churches into our church. They've got somewhere they can serve. They've got somewhere where they can worship Jesus. We're worried about the people who aren't plugged in anywhere. And we're, we're here to say that we've got a home for you that we can make you feel welcome and we recognize that you will take advantage of us and we recognize that you will hurt us and my promise to you is that we'll show mercy and that we will show a bottomless tank of mercy time and time again so what do we have to do to prepare ourselves to accomplish this well we have to, we have to do a couple of things, one we have to start, stop looking at people as if they're good and bad people and we have to start seeing people the way that Jesus saw people, that they are souls worth his dying for. Jesus doesn't see me and the guy in prison as a good guy and a bad guy because I'm a pastor and he's in prison. He sees a soul worth dying for and another soul worth dying for. And if he can bring either of them back into relationship with them, then it's entirely worth it. And so we stop seeing people as good and bad people and we start just simply saying that we see souls of broken people who need Jesus desperately. And the next and most importantly, we have to kind of check our own hearts and recognize maybe I'm not as great as I think I am. Maybe I'm a little more broken than I thought I was. Maybe I have received just as much mercy as this person still needs to receive. And so instead of saying that, you know I've got my life all together and I just can't be around these broken people, instead say, you know what, I was a broken person. Without Jesus, I had literally nothing. So what, what could I possibly do with my life besides pour it out to broken people and continue to show mercy to people who need it the most? Romans chapter five, verse 20 tells us this. It says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so as we see more sinners come into our church, guess what Jesus requires of us? It's not a rhetorical question. What does Jesus require of us? Grace. As we see more and more sin pour into our church, pour into our societies, Jesus says, I need you to show more and more grace, or in other words, more and more mercy because vengeance doesn't lie in your hands. Trust me, I'll I'll handle it when it needs to be handled. You just show mercy. And so then next on our blanks, we have this. It says, the merciful give because they have received. The merciful give because they have received. And so Ephesians chapter 4 verses 31 through 32 it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul does all this buildup of the most vile person. And then he says, yeah, that's you. You were the worst of the worst before Jesus came into your life. You were just as much a broken mess as anybody else was before Jesus came into your life. So when you see someone who you think can't be saved, all you're doing is you're cheapening the cross. All you're doing is you're cheapening grace. So instead, when, when you see someone who needs forgiveness, reflect then on how much forgiveness you yourself has received. And I hope this hits you like a ton of bricks because I hope it hits you like it hit me. When I'm reading through this, and and sometimes we just need a reality check, right? Sometimes we need to be reminded of who we were before Jesus. Even in the midst of Jesus, I still can't seem to get it right. But what does he do? He just keeps forgiving me. And so if he keeps forgiving me, Paul's telling me here, if he keeps forgiving me, then you keep forgiving them. And when we start to put in perspective of just how much Jesus has forgiven us, then we start to recognize just how much mercy He has shown us, because we recognize just how bad we are. I mean, take a minute to think about what you really deserve, how many times you've cheated, stolen, lied. And and if, and if God's standards are that being angry at somebody without a good reason is murder, not like murder, it is murder, then how much mercy have you really received? How much has God really forgiven you? You're not in a place to decide who does and does not receive mercy. You're in a place to strictly listen to who God has told you to show mercy to. I mean, we can justify our behavior all we want. And, and we're really good at it, by the way. We're really good at justifying our behavior. I can't tell you how many times I've done something and thought to myself, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, when you think about it, when you think about the whole context of, of how this person was just like really annoying and stuff, I mean, it wasn't that bad, right? And Jesus is over there like... Come on, Seth. Yes, it was really that bad. It was, yes. And so, compared to what this person's doing, Seth, you're, you're really not that great. You should probably just show them mercy. And even now as adults, we look back at the past in our lives. At everything that we've done leading up to who we are now. Wasn't that bad. But was it all you're doing when you justify these things is again you're cheapening the cross of Christ you're cheapening the grace that Jesus has shown us you're cheapening his forgiveness when you say i wasn't really that bad he didn't have to forgive that much do you have any idea what Jesus had to forgive if if you weren't that bad Jesus wouldn't have had to go through the entirety of the gruesome death that he had to face on the cross and so, so here's what this boils down to. When you're loved, you love. When you're forgiven, you forgive. When you're shown mercy, you show mercy. But, but here's the best part. Here's what's next. The merciful receive because they have given. The merciful receive because they have given. And this one's short, I promise. We're almost done. And so, so back in our text in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. But then what does he say after? For they shall receive mercy. And so just to, just to unpack this really quick, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about the life of David and what went on there. And, and so let's, let's unpack this a little bit. David's peak sin in his life that everybody, everybody remembers is that Jesus lusted after a woman. And he decided to take that woman. He had an affair with her. And then he had her husband murdered. So that's David's sin. It's pretty bad, right? I mean, I think we can agree that having an affair, murdering the husband, is not something that most Christians should be partaking in. Uh, so then let's, let's backtrack a little bit. There was another king before David named Saul. And so Saul's big sin was this. Uh, God had told him to go to war and to entirely wipe out a people group because of what they would do to the Israelites. And so Saul goes in, and, and he goes to war. He wins the war, and then he decides, well, these, these cattle are pretty nice. It'd be a shame to kill them. These women are pretty nice. It'd be a shame to kill them. Just take them back to Israel with me. It's not that big of a deal, right? And so he brings them back, and Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, approaches Saul, and he confronts his sin, and he says, you know what, Saul? God is done. You, you've lost uh, anything that he was going to offer you in your, in your kingdom, any help he was going to give you, he's done. But then David, when we look at David's sin, what was God's reaction to David? Nathan, who is the prophet at the time, comes and confronts David's sin. And then later, David repents. And he goes on in his relationship with God. So what's the difference here? The difference is that when we look at the entirety of the life of David, when we go back and we would look at when Saul was trying to kill David, even though David was the rightful heir to the throne, David had an opportunity to kill Saul, if you remember. David was in a cave when Saul was completely defenseless in the same cave, and David approached him with a knife, and at the last moment, he said, no, I can't do this to the Lord's anointed. I can't touch him. If, if God has this guy as king still, Then God has him as king. God is sovereign. He'll he'll handle this when he's ready to handle this. So David showed Saul mercy in that moment. And then when David needed mercy, what do we see from God? And so what Jesus is telling us here is that he's not talking about salvation. He's not saying that you can earn your way into heaven or anything like that. He's talking to people who already have a relationship with Jesus, talking to people who are already saved. And he's saying that if you show this mercy, two things are gonna happen. One, you're going to have a satisfaction that the rest of the world can't ever comprehend. I promise that. And two, when you need mercy, I got your back. I'll, I'll put in a good word to dad for you, right? You'll receive that mercy. Christians should be known for being merciful people. We, we have all the power in the world But we're to use it to build people up, to encourage people, to stand up for those who the rest of the world won't give justice, to pour love uh, that that we can't even find the bottoms of, to to pour that love out to the people who are rejected and have no love, to the people who are missing those divine relationships with God. God says, my solution is the church. It's the Christians. It's, It's you and me right here in this building. And he says, all I'm asking you to do is seek those people out and love them and show them mercy just like I did for you. If you're going to carry the name of Christ and be called a Christian, then act like me. Show the mercy that I showed. Show the love that I showed. Pour out to people the way that I did. So my encouragement to you would be that you'd go back to James 1.27. That that you would skim through and look through the Old Testament and find all those passages where, where God tells us that what we're to do is we're to pursue the people who are unloved and pursue the people who have no justice and to stand up for them. Because that's the religion that Jesus is looking for. That's pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. When we show love, when we show mercy, and when we do it to the most vile, to the worst of the worst, we put ourselves in a position that allows the love of God to pour out into our communities in ways that it will radically transform people's lives, and it will radically transform cities and counties and states. Do you get what I'm saying? That if, you, if we really want to reach the city of Porterville, this is what we do. That, that when people see Christians, they don't see a bunch of people who fold their hands together and say, good, got what's coming to them. Instead, they find a group of people who who realize that they don't have enough people around them to forgive already. If I could just find a few more. If I could just go out and find a few more people and show them mercy, show them love, show them compassion. When you show them, if I could just find a few more, a few more, a few more. When the world around us sees that, there's no denying Jesus at that point because that's when people see just how different we really are. And so, Jesus, we come to you this morning uh, thankful for your love for us, thankful that you sought us out when, when, in all reality, you probably should have turned your back on us. You had every right to turn your back on us. As as the king of a kingdom, you looked at the rebels and you, you said, what can I do but love them? What can I do but show mercy to them? And instead of wiping out the rebels, instead you died and paid the sacrifice for us. And love. And, and and all we ask this morning, Jesus, is that you would convict us of that, that, that you would pour that into us in a way that we would be so convicted that we have to go out into our communities and continue to show mercy, to continue to forgive, to show love in ways that is unprecedented. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his perfect and precious name that we pray. Amen.